I would challenge just about any game studio out there. Are you backing up your engineering and artist workstations? I don't think there is a single studio out there doing it. Welcome to Cloud DD. Today we have a very special guest with us, Daniel Hagen of Aspire Media. Daniel is an experienced IT director working in the gaming industry and on some of the most interesting and exciting remakes, including Star Wars. Welcome, Daniel. Very good to have you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Um, and we may as well just kick off straight away. Um, so what I'd be interested in is how you actually started in the gaming industry um, and what made you pick the career. Sure. So I'll say that I did not exactly pick the gaming industry. I kind of fell into the gaming industry, which is a little bit unusual. Um, but let's let me back up and explain how I got into IT in general and then how that led me in. Um, so growing up, I was the son of a computer engineer and software engineer. And so I uh, got to learn to program at a fairly early age. Uh, I actually took that to the point where I was doing contract web development um, in high school and used that to help pay my way through college and did that through college. And um, yeah, kind of picked IT just because... Uh, my older brothers had done software and had done hardware. And I'm like, I want to do something different than what they're doing. So I uh, found this middle ground where I got to play with hardware and software. And uh, that led me down the IT path. Did my uh, college degree in that. And uh, first job was a division of Logitech where I was uh, part of an IT group that uh for a division that worked on high-definition video conferencing and uh, quickly learned that enterprise is an interesting industry uh, to work in in IT. Everything, I the the worst horror story I, I tell there is having to get 25 signatures to replace a hard drive. And that's kind of where I knew I did not love the enterprise bureaucracy. Um, started looking around and a recruiter grabbed me and was like, hey, you got to check out this place called Aspire. Got to check it out. I'm like, I actually had a job offer. I'm actually already planning on this other opportunity. It's like, look, you got you to gotta just try it. You, it it's going to serve you well to just at least take the interview. I did the interview. I met the, the people at Aspire, and I was like, okay, yeah, no, I've got to do this. I've... I've I've got to give this a shot. Um, and I guess as you can say, the, the rest is history. Um, and, uh, yeah, as to gaming and, and interest in it, I've always had like a passing interest in gaming, but I'm one of, uh, several siblings, but I'm the one that my siblings would often invite to, you know, gaming matches. So they had someone easy to take out like that. That was my role. I'm the. I'm the one they sit around improving their KDRs and, you know, whatnot. oh, Daniel, you should go over here. Oh, so thank you for distracting them while I went over this way and, you know, scored the thing. So, um, 
I knew Michael. I knew Michael. Uh, yeah. So gaming's always been fun to me. I've just never been very good at it. And honestly, not a whole lot of time for it. So um, that led me into kind of where I'm at now. I've been with Aspire nine and a half years. I uh, started as a senior system admin and quickly took over IT manager role. And now I'm the director of IT there. Uh, serving on the executive team. So it's been a fun ride, and uh, I'm sure I can tell more and more stories about products and, and stuff that we've done at Aspire, but I'll I'll leave it there and see if you've got a, another question for me. I think we will we will get to also some more, more details. But uh, before we, we jump to it, could you give us like just a brief description what actually Aspire is, like what kind of sure. games you are doing, and uh, yeah, what is the company about? Yeah. Um, so Aspire's, I always have to do the math. It's it's about 27 years old this year, I believe. Um, so that's a, a decently long history, right? And uh, they've, they've gone through several evolutions of the business model. Um, right now, um, majority of what Aspire is and has been known for is uh doing port works so moving uh existing ips from one platform to another um you know one of the the uh most famous is uh star wars knights of the old republic it was originally released for xbox and and pc and you know various other platforms but it wasn't running on mac and so uh, through our partnerships, we were able to uh, get that source code, make it run on Mac. You know, we've kind of been known as this Mac port shop for, for a very long time. Um, but here we are moving it to Mac, and, and that served uh, our partner at Lucas uh, Games very well. And then we were able to, uh, since we had the source code, this is kind of a, a theme with Aspire. Oh, we've got access to the source code. Hey, let's try it on X platform. So we actually moved it to mobile and proved that it could work out very well in mobile. Showed that off to our partner and hey, there we go. We've now got it on iOS. Then we tried taking it to Android. And um, yeah, that's kind of the the thing. It, it, I I call it code to customer. We, we take it all the way from a partner gives us code we have an internal engineering and development team that will uh, use secret sauce that we've got to move it into another platform. And uh, and then we go sell it to the customer. We, we have our market channels. Um, so it's not just CoDev where we're taking the, the development workload off of the originating partner. We're actually taking the, the overhead of taking it to market, marketing it, um, doing customer support, all of that. We, we do all of that in-house so that the overhead that's on the originating studio is actually super minimal. And we love that because that allows us to really um, minimize the impact for the studio. We call it finding, you know, finding free money for them, right? They just haven't had the time to invest in that platform. We're going to take that time for them and then we're going to feed back royalties back to them so that... Uh, they're earning more uh, revenue than they anticipated on platforms. They just didn't have the time to run on. So uh, we've done a lot of that. And then uh, 
heritage. Uh, that's that's our big uh, focus in in many ways right now. We, I grew up playing some really awesome Star Wars video games, and I love the fact that Aspire has just doubled down and bringing these heritage titles to modern platforms like Switch. I can play Star Wars Pod Racer on my Switch, which I still know every nook and cranny of every racing level there. And so when that thing published, I, I picked it up, played it, and I'm like, man, this is this is like being a kid again. So I love that part. That's that's just a huge business model for us. Out out of interest, why has Heritage become such a, a driver for you? Um... So I think it has a bit to do with the generations uh, at play in the market. You know, you, you have people like me who are mid to late thirties, uh, grew up playing these classic video games, and now they have kids. Now they want to share. Now they, you know, I've got this uh, fondness for these uh, Star Wars pod racer levels, and I want to, you know, beat my niece or nephew at that racetrack. Uh, as I show them around, no, no holds barred. I, I take them out. There's no letting them win. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's just a lot of fun to share these memories, and I think that's that's been a core of this. There's either um, people going, "Oh, I I remember that," the nostalgia factor, um, but there's like it's one thing to just think back on it it's another thing to actually pull that out and play it and and share it um i know we've had a number of streamers take these products and and kind of show people around different elements that they remember it, it just has that feeling of i'm familiar with this and yet it's also brand new it's a new platform i'm i'm playing it on a mobile uh, Nintendo device and you know everything I would expect from that platform is right there so beating your uh, niece and nephew sounds like sweet revenge for your uh, childhood trauma um you're absolutely right <laughs> uh yes no uh I I should take it a little easier there might be some help and explanation but you better believe I, i'm coming in first i would like to ask uh when actually porting the game uh to mac or other platforms uh what is the say most time consuming part of the, the process yeah um several different pieces come to mind so i'm trying to pick which one is the uh most time consuming so let me start with saying we we have uh kind of a secret sauce uh when it comes to our development practice we've got a library that we've developed over the length of our company's existence and that library really helps uh us take care of a majority of calls that the gaming engines realize yeah you know, we're not talking about oh this is unreal um three and we just need to upgrade it to unreal five these are like custom built 3d rendering engines from the 90s 2000s whatever and so we have to work with low level direct 3d calls back in uh early 2000 era 
And so what this library does is take those calls to say Direct3D, remaps them to modern, you know, whether it's Metal or OpenGL or Vulkan or, you know, whatever platform or just DirectX 12, you know, calls, modernized uh, Direct3D calls. Um, it handles all the remapping of that. That's cool. That that simplifies, shortens up our pipeline in, in a majority of the, the game. But then inevitably there's that one call that someone decided, you know, what would make this game look great is if we did this one custom thing. And so our team has to go in and go, okay, what were they doing? How do we add that to our library so that, you know, we can handle that type of call as well. Um, that tends to be the biggest um, demand is going through and making sure there's uh, there it we we call it visual parity, right? It we really are striving for this. It looks like you remember it looking. Um, the other part uh, to it, which this still blows me away on the, the fact that uh, we're talking modern platforms here, but uh, optimizing for platform. Uh, we were just talking about this the other day, trying to get uh, games to fit on a certain size Nintendo Switch uh, memory card, not memory card, uh, uh, cartridge. And it's like, we're still trying to put these fairly old games on fairly modern uh data storage and yet we're still trying to optimize memory usage storage usage we're just trying to to shrink it down um and that can take a decent amount of time as well um actually when you, when you are doing this process uh are you also somehow working with uh, the you know the former developers of, of the game yes uh yeah no we we very much anticipate the partner coming along for the ride uh we want to make sure that we are doing our best diligence to be true to the original product if it's a heritage product um and that their vision for what it was and what it will be uh is is fully uh executed all the way through um so yeah we're we're constantly working with those originating partners uh sending builds back making sure that they're happy with the direction you also have to realize as we're modernizing this we are doing some some modifications to it we potentially have to adjust the aspect ratio are they okay with the menu looking different um we might uh implement uh motion control on a switch right um, are they okay with how the motion control feels? Is it responsive enough? Is it, you know, implemented in the right places? Uh, rumble on on PS4 and 5, you know, controllers. Are we using it the right way? Does it execute to the vision of the partner? And the fun part is when it's like, again, a, a title from the 2000s, and they never were envisioning uh, gamepad rumbling as you you know fire a weapon in the the game right but we're adding that so i i love that but it also leaves this kind of creative void for us to fill as we work with the originating partner to make sure again we're uh we're cohesive to the vision that they had for the product and continue to have more going forward from a um 
or I guess tweaking a, or, or remaking any gaming product, as you sort of touched upon, it's probably quite an emotional process for the people who made it originally. How do you actually manage that? And what's sort of the expectation setting from there? So I would say our interaction with a majority of the originating, well, okay, let me, let me step back a second here. The hard part with the gaming industry is so much of the originating studios for some of these products is they're not there. Uh, they've been swallowed up. They've been, you know, bought up, whatever. Um, and, and so you don't have a direct group to, to work with. Sometimes you do, and that's great. Um, usually when we're working with, uh, that sort of, uh, opportunity, uh, they're just thrilled that the game is seeing more activity again. Um, you know, they, they poured their heart and soul into it years ago. And so it's just an opportunity for that hard work to be shown again. So the, the interaction there tends to be really positive, um, really helpful, sometimes a little too helpful. Sometimes they're like, oh, I remember this one thing I really wanted to do. Um, you should totally try and do that. And we're like, yeah, no, we have to be feature parody on this. We can't add things, you know, sorry, that, but that's not part of the contract. Um, but when it's, uh, when it's a product that we don't have, uh, access to the original team, it's usually access to the, uh, new entities licensing group or something like that. They're the ones who are now, uh, shepherding this IP through a product life cycle. Um, often the they are made up of people who have either grown up with this IP or just, you know, our partners are doing such a good job of hiring talent that uh, represents that IP well. Um, so that it's very, very rare that we have a issue with an originating studio and, and they just feel like we're stepping all over their turf or anything like that. It's much much more and, and this is just something i love about the video game industry in general it's so collaborative it's it's this like it's about the the story and the exploration and we just get to go do these things we we all want each other to do well and you know when you're working with these uh pieces of ip they're just they're excited that it gets to be played again so there really isn't a whole lot of ego at, at play when it comes to that. Oh, uh, what did you ask? I think I, I will know the answer, but anyway, uh, did you ever work on some abandonware or it's always like uh, reworking actually the existing IP that is still being owned by someone? Um, nothing comes to mind off the top of my head for abandonware. Um, majority of it tends to be licensed IP. Um, I would say the hardest part there is just around legal. You know, there are so many games that we talk about where, man, we, we really want to see XYZ game, uh, come back to the market. That's kind of impossible because we either a can't find someone who legally has the right to say, yes, you can resell that. Or B, we can't find the source code for it. One of my favorite um, occurrences that just keeps happening is we're, we're talking with someone who technically owns the rights to a game. 
And they're like, great. Do you have the source code? And they're like, no, but we can, we can try and reach out to the previous people who worked on it. And inevitably we hear from someone who's like, I was digging through my boxes in my garage and looking for my old computer and trying to find the hard drive in it. I don't even know how to plug an ID hard drive into anything anymore these days. I'm like, oh my gosh, well, one, I can ship you a cable. But, uh, you know, like the, the fact that these people, you know, have a copy of source code potentially in their attic somewhere, it's one such a bizarre idea in, in our modern data, uh, uh, framework and two, just humorous just looking at this in my my imagination of what it's like we have one uh just this week who was like yeah my wife's been telling me i need to clean up the garage so i'll go look for that hard drive anyway um you know she she'll be happy you'll be happy we'll all be about uh, winning for it and to your um personal i guess favorites do you have a favorite title that you've made or project that you've worked on that you can name uh if, if you can't tell just by my, my bringing it up uh earlier pod racer is by far my favorite uh i i spent so much time on that game uh growing up and actually uh, i think I, I mentioned this to you fergus when you you visited but um it's the one that got me into networking i learned networking because of pod racer it used a, a networking stack called IPX. It was a, a Mac-heavy uh, protocol at the time. And I just wanted to play multiplayer uh, Pod Racer. And I had to figure out what this IPX protocol was, figure out if you could do it with PCs. Uh, at the era of the internet at the time, there was a lot of... Um, not even Google, it was Alta Vista and you know, everything else at the time, just digging away at what is this IPX uh, protocol and how does it work. So uh, thank you, Star Wars Pod Racer, for wasting away hours of my childhood. Uh, thank you for introducing me to the network stack. And thank you for uh, coming back again and just thrilling uh, my my adult ears, my nieces and nephews, uh, time, it's just been uh winter all around. And, uh, from the, you know, other way around, what was, uh, I don't want to say like the worst, but the, the most difficult and complicated project you worked on. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, well, the, the problem is a lot of the ones that first come to mind i probably can't say all that much about because they didn't actually complete or something like that it was just like a great idea not not fully executed um no exact uh title comes to mind let let me just describe the the trend on some of the ones that end up not going well and that is when we get in over our head um on a product that is just, uh, let me call it creatively designed. Um, it's something that was not, it, we've been told in the past, oh, this is running on Unreal 1. It should be a piece of cake. 
and then we get the source code and they basically ripped out the core engine of unreal one and put something else in its rendering pipeline or whatever and we're like okay that's not what we understood it to be um yeah that that's where we can get into to trouble um on products or or potential in that case potential products uh where we're just going through uh you know proof of life uh phases in a project um it's hard to say most of the ones that anyone would know the the name or, or product of um they were all excellent you know it's hard to to call them a problem or a struggle i will say there were a few that because of performance reasons we could only put on a few platforms uh certain hardware SKUs, and i was like that just that hurt me because i'm like ah part of our goal is that we're we're trying to make games that play on the most platforms for the most people right we want them we want everyone to be able to relive their memories on the best platforms um so when we can't do that that just that doesn't feel great either and uh so there's a few of those where i'm like man we had to drop that skew or the the men spec was just too high for a lot of people out there but and then if you could remake one other title what would you choose oh remake a title um so most of my uh memories of games i played growing up have been remade so that's a very short list um i think not just remaking but again in the theme of porting things and and that sort of thing i played so much real-time strategy um so uh we're talking like age of empires uh red alert i played so many hours of red alert uh my gamer tag that i still use today comes from playing red alert online um I would love to see titles like that uh, classically implemented in a modern uh, modern platform. You know, I I love those those IPs. They're still around. You can find them in modern mobile apps or you know whatever. But it it's not just struggling against like the microtransaction world or whatever that we live in today but it's it's just there's a different level of play a, a different method of play in these games and uh i miss the classic models in in many ways there so i'd love to see those come back in a modern uh platform by the way are you uh are you also playing some of uh these like you know boomer shooters that are right now quite popular uh yeah like new games look like old yeah. ones yeah yeah it's uh yeah the the theme is still there uh i get invited to be an easy target um yeah i i try and join in on the latest i grabbed overwatch 2 when it launched i grabbed you know everyone seems to to have to jump into um Oh, why am I blanking on the name? Um, not PUBG, 
the Epic uh, game, Fortnite. Fortnite. Thank you. Yes, uh, I've I've jumped into Fortnite and it's just way over my speed. Um, I I'm either hiding and then the the circle of death gets me, or I'm running out into the middle of nowhere and someone snipes me. Like it's just it's bad. It's uh, too too fast for my. Uh, I can't. I'm sounding old already. Like what is happening? Uh, but it's it's beyond my speed. Yeah, it's it's super difficult to play. I think it's connected with yeah, as you said, the speed. It simply really kids are much faster with the reflexes. The the one I still do well at is racing sims. Um, my reaction time there, and and it's racing, like it's driving. Awesome. And then moving on to the cloud side and IT related sort of topics. And one of the reasons why I was really interested to get you on was obviously to discuss this, but you obviously started nine, nine odd years ago, um, at Aspire mm -hmm. sort of seen the start of cloud probably at the same sort of time. I'd be interested looking back retrospectively, what your decision process was to actually adopt the cloud in the first place. Sure. Um, yeah, again, uh, back to kind of my intro and, and telling the story of uh, coming from a big, kind of more on the bureaucratic side of enterprise IT, I saw a lot of, um, I, I call it the IT department of no, um, where, where people were so fixed in the idea of if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, you know, we, we, we just don't want to change things for the sake of change. And there's a lot of value in that. Um, but I remember going into meetings where we were debating whether we should continue running an exchange server or move to Microsoft, uh, online. I forget the, the product name at the time. Now we know it as office 365, um, or Google Workspaces, which whatever it was called at the time, you know. And I just remember arguing, going, this is a commodity. This is a thing that is no longer unique to our company. This has nothing to do with what we uh, specialize in. Why would we pay someone to sit around all day making sure that an email server is running when it can be, you know, five to six bucks a uh, mailbox a month. Um, and I remember a lot of that being uh, fought against with this worry that we're somehow going to just cut back on the workforce and we don't need them. But that's never been the goal of it for me. The goal is to move all of the resources to focus on what is unique about your business. Um, to move away from commodity resources and move toward uh, data management and integration between tools. That's what is vital to business value and making sure that um, that your team is providing things that make the employees experience better or the customers experience better. 
So when it came to um, on-prem compute versus cloud, that's the exact same thing. It's okay. I I honestly got into IT thinking that I would be racking and stacking servers until I retire. Um, I still get to occasionally, but it's more of a have to than a a want to. Um, you know, gaming industry tends to be very data heavy, and so you still need to try and get your your data as optimal on the edge as you can, um, so that your engineers and designers and artists are all pulling data very uh, quickly and effectively. But at the same time, we find that so much more of a a, a add-on than the the core thought on how we design our network. Um, and that's really what the cloud did. It, it allowed us to move the commodity away from us. You know, we ran a, a lot of our data in a co-location. I still had to, uh, when the when the storms are rolling out here in Austin and you know, it's lightning left and right as I drive to the data center because at 3 a.m., one of our disks went offline in our storage array and I've got to drive across town to go swap that out, you know, whatever, to make sure that the alert goes away so that I can go back to bed and, and go to sleep. Um, the cloud takes all of that away, right? There's no longer this overhead of worrying about what our drive capacity is, what whether we have standby drives and, um, and all this stuff. There's new problems, don't get me wrong, there's problems that still wake us up at 3 a.m., but it's not these commodity issues of, well, we've got to make sure that we, we have this drive on hand and, and can replace it. Um, for me, a lot of uh, the, the next evolution of cloud, though, was actually taking advantage of the tools that were there. I find a lot of people think that cloud is just another co-location or data center. And so, hey, let's just put our VMs out there. Uh, let's just put them all together and done, right? We've did, done our digital evolution. Uh, we're cloud first. Yay, let's use all the terms and we're good to go. Um, but if that's your cloud strategy, you're actually messing up. There are so many things uh, that the cloud environments give you that I'm going through this this process right now. I'm I'm basically justifying the the cloud uh, internally right now, and there are aspects of being in the cloud that it's still hard. For as long as the cloud's out and we've still got our VMware stacks and and alternatives to VMware that have popped up now, and I still don't have the security control around a VM that I do with uh, AWS security group around the EC2 instance. Like, really, we still don't have that. Okay, um, you, you can build it, sort of, uh, but now you have to think about what the pricing of all the different little pieces of software are that you have. There, It just comes native. It's a commodity. It's, I don't have to think about it. Um, and those are sometimes the hardest things to put uh, numbers on when you're doing uh, comparative justification. You know, 
how do I even begin to to quantify some of these things? But um, yeah, cloud just has enabled us to take our security to a whole nother level. Um, it's allowed us to focus on doing some really unique and powerful integrations between tools. Um, and I just, you know, we're, we're actively looking right now to see if we can actually pull some things out of the cloud. And it's just so hard to think about what that looks like. Right. Um, but we're just so cloud native at this point, thinking about how we connect data and networks and tools. Um, it's really hard to, to think about going any other direction. So if I may ask, uh, what, what are the reasons behind, uh, thinking if you could pull something out, uh, is it a purely cost perspective or are there also some other reason behind this thinking? Yeah, uh, it mostly is cost. Um, you know, I, I like to, to think about, uh, most operations and kind of that quality triangle that a lot of people will refer to. You can have it fast, you can have it high quality, uh, you can have it cheap. Uh, pick two, in this case, it might be pick one, um, you know, and so when we're going through processes of trying to shed costs and, and just make sure that we're being effective in our, uh, spend. And I, I, I know we're currently in a climate of a lot of companies, uh, desiring to, to shed various expenses, but honestly, we should all be taking a that as a opportunity to do good due diligence, right? We should all be justifying our spend all the time, anytime. Um, this is a great season to go through that. Um, sometimes it means tight deadlines. Don't love that part. Um, but it, it is about cost in this case. And so we're just trying to look and go, okay, is it effective for us to, to store know 40 terabytes of something out in the cloud on uh hot ebs volumes which cost a very pretty penny um or can we somehow store that on-prem somewhere and be okay with that and as tends to be the truth in in many situations it's a mixture right the truth is you know that 40 terabyte volume we're probably only manipulating and reading two terabytes of that every day, um, somehow touching whatever. So what do we do to cut that data down, divide it up into different tiers? You know, that's, that's the part of, and again, this is where I say, get us out of the commodity part and focus on what's unique to us. You can't have someone else just look at your 40 terabytes of data and be like, all right, we're going to do X, Y, Z with it. You need to know as a studio, as an IT group, what data is important to your, your company. And that means knowing what products you're working on. If you don't know what your teams work are working on, you're going to make bad decisions and you're going to end up, uh, answering a lot of questions around why is this not available or so slow. Um, so you really need to know what the studio is working on. So you can architect your data properly. I think, you know, in this particular example, that's in my mind, we're working on moving about 36 terabytes to cold storage, you know, slower storage, uh, potentially even just doing long-term archival of it. Um, what does that mean? 
that means that instead of our backup solution doing snapshots of 40 terabytes once a day, seven days a week, 30 days a month, and it just storing all those backups. And by the way, starting as a backup sysadmin, you should be doing that. Even in the cloud, the cloud is not a backup free zone. You should have a, a full lifecycle management plan there. Anyway, um, rant over. Uh, but yeah, those snapshots add up. If you're backing up 40 terabytes every day for you know a full grandfather, father, son backup scheme. But if you are smart about it, if you're smart about your company's data, you can go, oh, well, 36 terabytes of that is like never touched. It's just archival. I'll also say this about this. We love the fact that we have had partners uh, that we've worked with that have given us their source code. They trust us with that. And that's the biggest struggle for me is making sure that I can answer their security question every time they ask with good answers around data practice. They end up coming to us later on and going, hey, um, we don't have the source code for XYZ. We're on the other side of that conversation from earlier. They're like, we don't know where this went. And we're like, oh yeah, we've got a copy. Here you go. So we, this is something we love being able to do with our partners is they trust us with the data. Uh, we take that seriously. We protect that with the, the brand and, uh, honestly, our jobs, of protecting it and, and safeguarding it. But then we get to hand it right back to them if they ever need it. Um, so we want to keep 36 terabytes of data. We want to keep but I don't need to back it up daily. How can I move that off into a, a different data structure where that can be backed up maybe once a week? Just due diligence on it. Let's make sure that it's backing up once a week. Ideally, it only gets backed up when it changes. Let's look at what cloud you know tools we can use to detect when something changes and trigger a backup there. But using basic tools, let's start with, and I, I tell my team all the time, let's crawl, then we can walk, then we can run. Let's crawl and just put the data over in a different bucket so we can snapshot it at a different pace. And then if we have the chance to come back around and iterate, let's walk and let's make a trigger on data change instead. So, um, but all of this is, is just tooling that the cloud gives us um, that make it, uh, make it so much different than running it on-prem. I know there's snapshot basis in uh, VMware stack and, and stuff like that. I was uh, running Veeam and, and VMware prior to the cloud uh, migration to AWS, and it was super effective, but this is more effective. Okay. Uh, by the way, as you mentioned, this uh, three stages basically grow, walk, and run. Uh, it reminded me that the stages of FitOps that uh, are also typically being used. Do you have some dedicated I would say FinOps activities in the house, uh, or it's more like spread into all you know other roles, or do you have it somehow centralized? For example, um, FinOps is hard. Let's just start there. Um, I I have done a number of projects over the last let's say three or so years, just trying to uh, get us to a proper uh, billing model in our cloud. Um, and I've 
I'll just be very transparent and honest. I don't think we're fully where we need to be on that still. Um, so let, let's start with the problem that FinOps is trying to, to solve, right? We're trying to understand what is going on in the cloud, how it's being used so that accounting can then take that information and allocate and code it correctly. Right. Um, and traditionally what you get is your AWS bill at the end of the month or start of the month and, uh, and accounting sees all these lines in your invoice and they're like, we don't know what that is. Uh, you tell us. And so we're looking at it and go, you know, for us, we're a multi-account structure. So we've got like all of our development in one AWS account and general resources in a different account. And, you know, we're working more and more toward networking in one account, security over here, you know, doing best practice according to some of the AWS white papers. Um, so you can kind of explain that story, but here's the, here's the problem that we've hit is, uh, we didn't start cloud native. Now I, I talked about the, the concept of the cloud is just another VM, another, uh, data center that's not taking advantage of the cloud that leaves you with a co-location bill that you just say, hey, a percentage of this goes this way, whatever. What the cloud natively supports is tagging. And so we should be tagging every workload with what products it's working on, uh, who built it, when it was built, what its purpose is. I'm a big fan of death dates. You know, everyone has a go live date. Uh, we don't always go into it thinking, okay, what? but when are we going to shut the thing down? Um, so when it comes to FinOps, you're really trying to tell the story of what is the purpose of each resource and how do we communicate that in a regular accounting approved way um, so that they can take that data on the regular and, uh, and code it accordingly. And, and this starts getting accounting heavy here. So, I'll, I'll try and keep it higher level, but this makes a big difference. If you can say that um, a certain resource is used in a particular product, that allows you to capitalize, at least in U.S. Uh, accounting, um, and I know of several international accounting rule sets, you can capitalize that spend toward that product. That means that it's no longer an expense that you have to take as just general expense expenditure you get to do that differently in the accounting books accountants will love you if you can capitalize at what would generally be expenses toward a product well if you're going to do that you need to be able to tell them with great assurance that that service was only used for that product how are we going to tell that story so finops tagging that tends to be the the direction we go you know aws has their advanced uh advanced billing reports and so there's just a lot in there of how do you build this out what are your tagging standards um i'll even say this this is a big theme for us this year we're we've done aws for about 
eight, nine years now at Aspire. And most of that time has been doing ClickOps. You know, you, you log into the AWS console, you start spinning up an EC2 instance through their wizard and great, it worked. Uh, you, you set up an S3 bucket, great, it's done. Did you remember to tag it? Maybe. Um, you know, did, did you name it well, properly? Did you even have something to go off of? Did you look at the other buckets around the bucket you created and, and try and figure out if there was a naming convention? Maybe. Um, the big theme that we're going through right now is moving from ClickOps to infrastructure as code. I cannot uh, express how beneficial that process is. Um, there's elements of just documentation that come comes with that. Uh, there's standardization that comes with that. Um, it just it is phenomenal when you start moving that direction, and it really gets you to this reliable, repeatable state uh, that everyone talks about. They really do. You you hear it everywhere. Infrastructure is code. But it really is, and it's, it's helpful if you can get in that direction. Um, there's so many tools out there that can help you in that direction. Um, and highly recommend using them. Use them sooner than later. Uh, it'll, it'll help with the FinOps. I can't believe how much it's helped us with FinOps just in. We're going through and tagging everything as we convert it into a code stack. And now we have probably about 30% more tags than we had at the start of uh, our infrastructure as code just because of that. Super interesting. And thank you for that. Um, I'm moving on a little bit to the future of gaming. Um, I know you had, when we met in Austin, you had some very clear ideas of, of what it looked like or, or um, some visions, I guess. How do you see it? Um, and do you see sort of cloud gaming and cloud gaming development as the future of the industry? Or what do you see as the sort of future trends moving into the next few years? Sure. Um, I I don't see gaming going anywhere but the cloud. It's, it's my short summary. Um, you know, be a private cloud, be a public cloud. You know, there, there's a lot of ways to slice it. But... Um, you know, we, we've seen endeavors toward true, like, cloud streaming gaming, um, be it Stadia, may it rest in peace, Luna, um, uh, NVIDIA's uh, Go, streaming, uh, Go streaming service. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a little rusty on some of those terms. Um, they're an experience. Uh, I've played through all of them. They're they're good experience. There's that delivery system. Um, there's just live ops. There's, you know, we were talking Fortnite earlier. They are doing a business model that uh, has new content all the time. And that's what their customers experience, uh, expect. Their customer experience is expected to change regularly. Um, it's really hard to do that with your own network. You can. Um, I would argue, are you being effective with that network? Um, you know, one of the hardest things when you start going toward a live ops model is having to anticipate demand, right? You're trying to figure out what is the highest number of uh, 
of players that are going to log into my game at one point in time. Um, because that's how many servers we need to be running to support that workload. And then the 90% of the time other than that, that hardware is just going to sit there. And maybe you get really advanced and you have some stuff that, that bursts up and you can reutilize it elsewhere. And, you know, there's more and more software and, and hardware stacks specifically toward that. But ultimately, that's still taking a lot of the workload on you and your team to predict this. Whereas the benefit of a public cloud is the elasticity, the ability to scale with your demand. Um, you know, we, we've got a multiplayer service, uh, right now that has 16 player slots. And every time we get to, uh, filling up the 10th player in that server that's running, we spin up another one. That way, by the time it hits that 16th player, the 7th player that joins or is looking for a session automatically has a hot server standing by ready to play and then the 18th and 19th and then when they all uh leave for lunch or whatever customer cycles is really interesting in video game you can just kind of see throughout the world where people take you know breaks throughout the day um it scales down you know as a server has been sitting around for uh, 30 minutes without players in it and there's another server that has you know, 8 players in it service is no longer needed go ahead and cut that server that sort of elasticity is what you want to have especially as you're planning for uh, games that are going to have spikes you, you look at the, the game models these days and it's delivering content regularly uh, every month now, think about what that overhead workload is for your IT team. You've got to um, add servers at this launch date, take them away at this, you know, estimated date. Oh, nope, let's bring them back. Oh, nope, we can slow them down. Now, that's just whipping your, your IT team around from one objective to another objective. If you plan for the scale of this, it's, it's a whole different thing. Um, it just runs. Um, so there's that element, uh, to the customer aspect, the thing that we've had to focus on over the last couple of years, you know, the, the pandemic, uh, definitely accelerated this, but I can't even blame it on the pandemic fully. Um, but it, it's around our employee experience when it comes to game making. Um, I live in Austin, Texas. It's a very highly uh, sought after location. Uh, seems like everyone is moving here. At least our roadways seem to show that. Um, and uh, and I love it. I love the city. I love the, the culture around here. And then you get employees coming in going, yeah, I, I love it here. I'm I, they're a highly sought after employee resource. They go, but I'd really like to work from home two days a week. And we're like, cool, that sounds great. Oh, wait, 
traditionally we've had to buy you a you know $10,000 workstation with all the latest greatest bells and whistles of GPUs and hard drives and SSDs and yep, memory you need the best of the best to get the job done, right? Um, $10,000 desktop, though. And I'm not buying you one for the office and one for home. Let alone, if you take that thing home with you, am I ever going to see it again? And how much cat hair is going to be in there? Uh, you know, you just have to to process through some of that and, and go, how are we going to do this? And then, of course, the pandemic hit, and it's, okay, go ahead and take that machine home with you. Oh. Office is closed, and please bring it back. That's a very expensive thing to, you know, take home with you. Uh, so it begs the question: What does game development look like in the future? Um, and we've gone down this path uh, very heavily. We we actually still have a very heavy hybrid uh, engineering uh, group. And so our model right now is using uh, very kind of lightweight laptops with a remote desktop protocol that's very latency uh, aggressive, making sure that you know they have the best low latency experience they can get. This is actually where I love uh, the impact from some of the cloud streaming, game streaming services. Um, those protocols are being reintegrated into our remote desktop protocols. And so uh, the same thing that helps Luna have really low latency uh, I.O. as you experience a video game through stream, it's helping us do uh, low latency game design. So an artist or modeler can do pen strokes uh, on their, their tablet at home and it streams to the machine uh, at, in a very responsive way. Um, th this demand for doing, uh, doing work from any location that makes sense for an employee has led us to have to figure out how to do compute in a very flexible way. Uh, and this is just something we continue to try and slice and dice and figure out how, how to get it uh, efficiently, effectively, uh, and with that level of quality that, that we really strive for here at Aspire. Thank you for thank you for that uh, explanation. Uh, by the way, to come back to this elasticity point, uh, I have one friend and he's calling uh, this uh, that everything is happening automatically. Uh, so uh, uh, usually it, it's it's like like that basically. And I wanted to ask uh, about this. Uh, let's say moving the the game development environment uh, and the workstations to cloud. What was the and like general reaction from uh, from artists to to such approach because I have you know I have some experiences that they simply love to have the nice beautifully expensive you know laptop workstation how they reacted to that um, laughter is a, a a good place to start um, there were definitely some comments of like you, you want us to do what um, do you, do you know what my job is do you know what tools we use um yeah no the, the initial reactions were not great um and and so i think looking back on it the the two things that were successful for us uh in in helping change that culture uh 
first was looking around at the industry and making sure that we're not just crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember going to AWS reInvent and uh, Netflix gave a presentation on how they were doing workstations for their designers, editors, uh, artists. And they went a very, you know, novel route of trying to make these VMs that are constantly available and hot for artists. It would attach their profile into it so that they always had their data on whatever instance they connected to it. Phenomenal engineer went into this. Um, Netflix. You go tell an artist that there's teams at Netflix doing their job via this technology, you start to break open the the traditional mindset. Um, and, and so knowing that these other, and I, I thank Netflix for, for doing that talk. And honestly, I wish more uh, groups and industries would talk about that. You know, there's nothing super secret about that secret sauce, right? Anything that we do to better the technology stack and supporting this, everyone wins. Um, so Netflix isn't telling us anything that's going to make us the next Netflix killer. They're helping the industry learn how to do a better thing in a better way. Um, so thank you to Netflix for having that that presentation at AWS reInvent. Because then I'm able to take that information, go to our artists and say, okay, I get it. It sounds weird, but did you know that Netflix is doing this? And they go, oh, okay. I'm interested. Like, you, you got my ear. Um, and then the, the second successful uh, aspect of changing the culture there is finding your... Uh, Finding the people who are going to represent you within their teams. You know, they have to be there to speak up when you can't be the one championing the concept. So there were certain artists and engineers that, uh, I don't know how to say it any other way than we really quit. We're, we're good at talking. You know, we had some similar interests. We were able to, to chat. And I'm able to bring it up with them and go, hey, you know, over lunch, over a coffee as we're we're in the break room, just been like, hey, I, I just got back from reInvent and and Netflix gave this talk, and it was awesome about the these remote desktop protocols and blah blah, and and because we had that connection, uh, they're interested, they're listening, and then as we present this concept to their team you start to see them be part of the conversation with you as yeah, that's kind of a, you know, most, most conversations tended to be very standoff. Like you're presenting to a dead room and you're like, is this mic on? Um, but when you have someone like that, they bring the questions, they feel comfortable asking you, okay, but what does that mean for latency on, you know, I'm an artist. I use a pen interface. Does it support that? What's the experience when I do that? Everyone else is thinking those questions, but because 
that person's comfortable with you, they're actually willing to ask them out loud. And then you're able to answer it. And you're able to say, hey, I get that. And we asked those questions at the, the presentation. And actually, they were impressed with how low impact this protocol was. And it just kind of worked. People were impressed. Um, and then those same champions that you start building up within the teams, uh, if you can get them to beta test it for you, they can start being the ones who are like, hey, I, I did this thing. I can now use my workspace from home and the office, and I get the exact same environment. All my tools are right there. I don't have to worry about checking my stuff in on this machine and then checking it out on this machine. And it it's actually a lot more flexible. Um, and the other day, I, I messed something up, and I was like, I've got to reinstall all these tools. And actually, I've, I realized that Daniel and his team talked about snapshotting the VM. So I actually just asked if they could revert that snap to that last snapshot before I messed things up. And he was able to, and it restored in like 30 minutes. I would have spent all day rebuilding that. Now they start timing these conversations within their team very naturally. And it's through that championing of your, your tool set and your products that you begin to change the culture. Um, and so that, that really impacted, uh, the trajectory of us moving forward with a BDI solved. Um, and I guess the rest is really history there. Um, the biggest struggle we hit there was maybe being a little ahead of the curve in some ways, uh, tool sets around starting and stopping VMs when people aren't using them. BDI got really expensive for us. I just got to be honest. Uh, we were running, keep in mind, this is, this part is really inspired by the pandemic. Uh, we did not have access to a lot of hardware. You know, there were shipping delays. There was just, hardware was scarce. The hardware that wasn't scarce was cloud. Uh, we could actually spin up graphically backed instances in AWS when we couldn't buy desktops or laptops. And so that, or, or high powered, uh, desktops and laptops. So we were actually able to buy some off the shelf laptops, send them out to employees and have them connect to graphically backed instances. That was great for that time period. Uh, now we're back to having uh, supply chains, and so we, we can get the cheaper hardware. And, and so we're actually doing a lot of uh, desktops that are in the office, but people still use their laptops from home to connect to those desktops and, and go from there. Uh, we're working on a, a tool, a tool chain to allow us to do more on-demand instances. My hope is to get us back to the flexibility of EC2 instances. Uh, to run those. Uh, but again, that's a cost-saving aspect. You know, we've got to bring it back because graphically-backed instances are really expensive on AWS. Um, but if you can re-engineer around that, I, I think you can effectively run it there at, if not better, than uh, on-prem cost. Uh, yeah, like, just a quick follow-up question on that. So, Let's say without the pandemic, uh, 
as you said it, like uh, the graphical instances in AWS or other clouds are simply ex uh, expensive. Uh, if you have some, let's say, discussions, for example, with the, I don't know, finance team, uh, how look from your perspective, kind of like ROI calculation to compare, you know, the VDI towards the hardware? Because like, if you would compare purely the hardware price, of course, uh, it will not fly for, for the VDI, but what other aspects you are putting to the calculation? So the, this is still an area that I'm, I'm struggling to, to bring good metrics for, um, cause the easiest one to talk about is the, the initial cost of hardware versus the ongoing cost of, uh, cloud expenses. Um, the, the struggle I have is finding metrics around user experience. Now, I, I mentioned just a minute ago about, uh, you can log in to your desktop environment and it's the same on your local system as your office system. Well, how much time just got saved there? We've got to put a metric to it. Um, what is the user experience to that? You got to put a metric to it. Um, was it important for them to have that experience? You got to get them to say so and, and rate that. Um, and that's something we just, as a, a culture of employees haven't done very well, um, is, is finding those metrics, putting those, those, uh, attributes into numbers. And particularly then taking those numbers and converting them into some form of dollar figure. Um, that's kind of the, the big, uh, desire I have is trying to find these metrics and quantify them so that other studios can use those. I, I can't tell you how many times I'm Googling around going, what is the cost of downtime when the office network goes down? There is a metric out there, a, a, a like solid dollar figure for that. You've got to talk to your production and project management teams and ask them to help you come up with that number. And oh, by the way, you're just IT. So, you know, your priorities kind of down here while they're trying to get games out the door. And so you're like, any news on that metric or how much it costs us when we're not doing things? Um, so that's that's really the hard part is putting those together because once you truly have those data points, you can really have that conversation about ROI. Um, without that, you're, you're pretty hamstrung. And I, I've done this for the last several years of just trying to say, look, you just kind of got to trust me on this. It's going to be better for us. Or look, the hardware is not there. We've got to do it this way. And some days I win those battles and some days I lose those battles. Um, and that's not where you want to be. So, so take this, uh, as me being very transparent, we don't have the answer there. Um, but that's the trajectory we need to go to is having metrics, having, uh, data points that we can have that conversation with accounting and leadership and say, this is why you want us to be doing this. Um, I'll, I'll just double tap on, on one thing real quick though. Back to that, uh, example around snapshots. I would challenge 
just about any game studio out there. Are you backing up your engineering and artist workstations to the point that you can restore that on a daily basis? You might might be uh, very forward thinking and, and have some backups uh, on a, a weekly or monthly basis or, or maybe you, whatever. They, there's different models. But to have an infrastructure that can take those snapshots and not impact the users, I, I don't think there is a single studio out there doing it. Now, you could argue, is that even valuable? Um, you know, if our employees are just checking into the source control server, they should never need backups of their, their workstation. Uh, we've, we've got an example to counter that example. We've got workstations. Uh, it's this one project, I, I won't name it, uh, but there's this project that I, I jokingly say, if you look at it wrong, it corrupts the, uh, the source code tree. I, I don't get it. There's something about, uh, the engine that it's running on where you switch platforms and our engineers and artists have literally had to basically nuke the source tree. Not just that we've had to reinstall the OS. Like it does something in the user profile that just, it's hard to reset it and get it back up and running. Well, that has left us with engineers and artists that are down for a day. How expensive is that? That your lead engineer can't get any work done because they're spending the day. They got a new system from IT. Work quick on that. We've got images. We can start that. Cool. But they now have to install their IDE. They have to install the engine. They have to re-download all the source code. They have to... That's expensive to have that resource down. Think about what that's doing to your milestones, to your deadlines. If you can build an infrastructure where they go, well, that wasn't good. Revert. Like, uh, load save. Uh, we should put that in front of them. We should give them the opportunity for that. And uh, and when we had cloud-backed VDI, we had that ability and we utilized that ability. Um, but again, those are metrics we're not used to as an industry having to put forth to people to justify this. Um, the, the meantime to restore, that's an IT metric, right? Uh, that's generally in the concept of servers. How long until the source code server is backed up and running so that our teams can restore, uh, our, can start committing their, their work again? Okay, that's a, a metric we use over there. What's the meantime to restore if an employee can't log into their workstation? Um, now, I, I started uh, at Aspire and not coming from the games industry. I wanted to understand what the workflow was for all of our, our employees. And so I actually scheduled just 15 minute slots with basically everyone I could. We were small, we were like 57 employees at the time. And I scheduled time with each engineer and I sat down with them and just, hi, I'm Daniel, I'm the new IT guy. Like, I wanna understand what's going on. And in that conversation, I just, you know, I. I'm a coffee addict. I'll just be honest. Um, I hope my cardio is not listening to this. Anyway, 
Uh, and, uh, so I had a cup of coffee in my hand and I'm like, okay, okay. That's cool. That's cool. Hey, what if I spilled this cup of coffee all over your computer? What would happen? What would you do? Like how much data would you lose? How much, um, what would you do if we brought a new system out to get you back up and running? What would you need to do to, to get back to doing your job? And it was through those conversations that I began to understand how often they commit, what tools they use, um, what is critical to them, what is just a nice to have. But you've got to have those conversations with those teams to understand what their workflows are. And that takes time out of their day. That takes time out of your day. But it doesn't have to be long. We're just talking 15 minutes. 15-minute conversation to say, hey, if I spill this coffee on your computer, okay, maybe don't lead off with that. But, you know, what would you do? Have those conversations, get to know your teams, get to know what they're actually doing and what's important to them, and then build your uh, infrastructure to support that. And I truly think that the mean time to restore an engineer or artist's environment is a very critical metric, but we've got to figure out how to track that better and put a value to it. Because accounting is going to look at your BDI infrastructure and go, spending a lot of money. And I'm going to look at that and go, yeah, we are. But if one of our engineers goes down, we've got them back up and running in 30 minutes max. Isn't that impressive? Isn't that great for our company that we can keep our development teams effective and online as much as we are? There's other uh, metrics that, that impact as well. You put your VDI infrastructure right next to your source control server. Um, you know, back in the day, all the desktops were in the office. You had a Perforce server in your data room, at least an edge replica, quick syncs. You move a user home on their hopefully as wonderful as one gigabit internet connection. It's slow. They still have to sync data across that wire. Um, hopefully your office, uh, or maybe you've moved the source control server up to a cloud provider or, or colo. Hopefully the bandwidth's high on that. You put your VDI infrastructure right next to your cloud source control server. Your syncs get real short. That, that terabyte of data that they have to initially sync syncs real fast. And the, the deltas that they commit super fast. That's another metric you have to take into account. Um, you should be measuring that pre-cloud conversion. You should measure that post-cloud conversion uh, to show your ROI. Amazing. Thank you. Um, and Daniel, we've got a little tradition on the podcast, which is called Explain It Like I'm Five. Um, we'll give you a few terms, and in one sentence, you have to describe uh, the word as if I was a five-year-old. Ready? Let's do it. Star Wars. All right. I've got to have a, a, a moment to process. Um, all, all the terms that are coming to mind are not uh, uh, currently PC. Um, let's say... Uh, Space adventure with laser swords. AI. 
I love this one. My, I, I have a go-to for this one. And it is uh, bad code repeated often. Just do it enough times and eventually you get the right answer. So, you know. Okay. Texas. Oh, uh, I, I grew up in Texas, so I, I have so many. Well, I was born in Texas, raised in Colorado, mostly grown up in, in Texas now, though. Um, all the terms that are coming to mind are about Texas pride and whatnot. Right now, one sentence. Oven. That's pretty hot. It's it's warm. Yeah. Okay. Last one. Uh, game design. Ooh, I have a lot of love and respect for game designers out there. I really thought they did a different job than they do. I guess originally. Mm. Puzzle maker. Puzzle maker. Good one. And then last question from me, separate to the game. If you would advise our listeners uh, on what to do in a day in Austin, what would you tell them to do? That is so... More importantly, where would you advise them to eat their barbecue? Okay, there we go. Because um, the first version of that question, I'm like, it depends on the time of year. Like, there are good times of year where I'm like, you got to get out. You got to go, you know, be on, on Town Lake paddling a canoe or, or stand up paddleboard sort of thing. Great experience. Don't do that right now. You might have heat exhaustion. Um, best barbecue I can recommend. Uh, I know this is something that we, we talked about while you were here. Uh, I'm one of those that will argue barbecue based on what makes up barbecue. There are some that are when they talk barbecue, they're just talking how the meat is done. There are those who consider sides a part of the equation. There's uh, people who the sauce matters. Um, so being a generalist and supporter of all people and preferences, I tend to break it down into those those categories. So I would take you to Franklin's for the meat. I would take you to Rudy's for the sauce. Don't hate me for that, everyone. Um, and, uh, there's a place called Pokey Joe's for sides. Um, I love their fried okra and their cornbread, uh, side. It's phenomenal. I'm getting hungry now. Come to Austin. I'll, uh, I'll take you to all three of those places somehow in a day. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to do indefinitely. So I think, uh, that's it, right, Fergus? I think we kind of went through all the topics we wanted to discuss with you, Daniel. So thank you very much for joining our podcast. It was it was fun, very interesting, a lot of, lot of great information you shared with us. So thank you very much for that. Absolutely. My pleasure. Have a nice day. We are Revology, a leading cloud partner with cloud teams around the globe. We provide professional and managed services for your projects on GCP and AWS, and we help make life to digital native companies in the cloud easier. You can check our website at revology.com for more information and make sure you follow us, Daniel and the Aspire team on LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and see you next time.